Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show and uh, catching fire a little bit here in the month of January, um, starting off a new year, 12 years into my program. I had an opportunity a few weeks back to interview the great Bruce Hornsby, and he brought his uh, noisemakers um, to the, the Fox Theater in Tucson. And uh, it was really pretty profound because, you know, it's, it's very easy in this time, especially with someone like Bruce, um, to come in and just sort of deliver a formula trip performance and the audience wouldn't really know the difference and they'd sit there and applaud uh, whether they knew, whether they dug the music or not. But in this case, uh, Bruce went all out, had an incredible rhythm section, had a great electric guitar player, but I just kept focusing on this cat, string string player, mandolin player, uh, I mean, I, I assume he can probably play everything, um, but he was constantly smiling, and he was constantly having a ball, and you could see that uh, Bruce was in the kind of mood that night to stretch things out, uh, maybe not completely throw the set list away, um, but th- this this cat was hanging right with him. It, he was, it was, there was a noticeable age difference between him and the rest of the band, and quite frankly, anytime I see a younger cat with that kind of audacity to get on the bandstand with serious melodic geniuses and not only get on the bandstand, but hang in there and do it. Uh, it was really, uh, really profound and inspiring. So I tagged him in a post and then another post and another post. And, uh, I'm, you know, that's my job as a broadcaster is to heal through inspiration, no matter what kind of medium, whether it's uh, in print or in audio or in video form, and I get a chance today to speak to somebody who's on his path. It's not always the easiest path in the world, uh, but at the end of the day, it keeps your soul young, it keeps you physically healthy, and uh, many more chapters left to write. John Mylander, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you for having me, Jake. You know, man, um, you know, was it fair to say, I mean, you just answer honestly, I mean, was that a little bit more of a stretched out Bruce show than normal? It it felt to me like there were some times where maybe um, you guys kind of went off and did, kind of improvised a little bit. And I just wonder if that's something that happens at every show or was that kind of unique to the to the Tucson show? Um, man, that's really like every show with Bruce. Um that that night in particular was it, we were all feeling really great that night and had a had a great connection. Um, I think it, that was the second of our our two shows that week, right. and uh, after a few months off, so there was this energy of like being back together again and um, you know wanting to explore that again, but. Um, it, it, but it's, 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 it's par for, I mean, of course it's par for the course. I mean, he's always going, going out on a limb, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He's always pushing. I, he, I feel like his goal is partially to push the band members and like poke and prod us a little bit. Like he's always finding what we're scared to do and then forcing us to do that. <laughs> Dude, that is legendary. So, so tell cause I mean, at one point he was like, um, it was a little bit of like a modal kind of thing, but he just pointed to you and you started just picking away at the mandolin. Uh, can you just talk to the audience about, you know, stuff that's outside your comfort zone that Bruce is always like, well, all right, my lander, it's time to d- dive in the deep end. What, what, what kind of situation instills fear in my lander? Um, man, so much. <laughs> probably, um, probably you know, when you, you said I was smiling and having a great time on stage, I'm just like smiling through the fear sure. a lot of the time because sure. that's the only way forward. And it's so rewarding, too. And, you know, we all have like, I'll have a lot of things I feel like every every show I could have done better or like times I totally feel like I fell on my face. But an equal amount of times where there's like redemption the next night or like a, a week later, I'll try to try to do something that I did a week before and failed and then overcome that. And just to have that opportunity to like keep trying for something new and something that I haven't done before that the band hasn't done 
collectively before. Um, I, I feel like that's what pushes Bruce, and um, I'm, I'm really inspired by that. I'm always trying to surprise him and, and keep him happy, too, and... I don't know. That's a big question. Well, I mean, like, like, I mean, though everybody in that band is a, is a pro's pro. I mean, I don't care what age you are, but everybody kind of does have their their comfort zone. I'm just like when you first joined the band, what was something that you've now looked back on and say, "Boy, I've come a long way in that." It could have been like stage presence. I mean, there were cats that I know that they were so in in terror of being of performing that they were like on the for a long time they'd be on the side of the stage like by the curtains it'd be hard to get out and then there's just the idea of like you know coming from like more of a i don't want to say formula trip background but we you know there's also the, like leaving the head of the tune and improvising and i'm just curious if you could identify maybe something that you feel like you've really come a long way with since you joined mm. brother bruce i think the the biggest thing for me and the the most terrifying thing is um singing for me and wow. that's something I, I hadn't done really at all before i joined the band um and when bruce first asked me to join he's like do you sing tenor and i was like not really like i'll, <laughs> I'll work on it and you know um but that still terrifies me to do but i've i feel like i've gotten a lot more comfortable in my role just like trusting that you know as long as I hit the note in tune trusting Chuck and Wayne our sound crew to like blend it in and it's all going to work out but you know I, I totally um I'm, I'm really self-critical about anything when it comes to music and um well I want to just stop you right there I mean point. this is one reason I'm very happy to, to have connected with you because it's going to be very hard for you to just change that habitual nature inside of you. But I just want to tell you from, a, from my point of view as a journalist, uh, I just think that that's a, that's a, that's a drag to beat yourself up. Like I, I really want you to, to be much more forgiving and that doesn't mean you're, you're slacking off or being a less of a musician, but you know, you got, I mean, I talked to my kids about this too. They're not musicians, but it's just like they're doing when you're doing well and you're in these positions, instead of focusing on that one thing that maybe is nagging at you, please remember me and stop and smell the roses once in a while, you know, cause I just don't, otherwise I don't, I just feel like that's one of the most gratifying parts of being a live, you know, road dog musician is just the idea of, um, there are no wrong notes or you got to find the right notes, but at the same time, just play through it. You're there for a reason. You're on your path. So if nine out of ten things are cooking away, don't focus on that other thing. Or at least do, do your part to, to let go a little bit, brother. Because you know what? You gotta, you, happiness is our divine right, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're so right. It, it's, it's terrifying and easy to be self-critical, but it's also the most joyful thing. Like the joy comes out of, over, you know, overcoming those things and working through them in the moment um, during a show for me a lot of the time. Do you, because, you know, I was just back east seeing um, Circles Around the Sun, uh, my favorite I band. Lo I love that band. Dude, the, I mean, they're even, the, the the I think I love the cats more than, the, I mean, I love the music, but I just, those guys are so legendary. But we were outside <laughs> hanging out after the show, uh, in Connecticut on Saturday night and Adam McDougal was talking about they had just gone to Mexico and um, or Grateful Shred had just gone to Mexico and the generator for the the stage died during one of their gigs and Adam's, a, you know, I mean, he's a seasoned, I mean, he's a, he's he's been a road dog for probably longer than he wants to admit, but um, he said that the jewel is the struggle because to work, you, the, the band, I don't exactly know how they, I mean, ultimately they got the generator working again, but then it was like almost having to remix the sound. I wasn't complete. I, I wasn't present obviously, but um, the point is it was like that, that 
that that angst and that grease and that and that turmoil he was like that's what it's about is finding that balance with the band again you know and i just wonder like not that you're comfortable in that because that can be very unnerving for people but i mean can you talk about a time and i don't care when it was doesn't be with bruce but just like looking back on it when you can say wow you know the jewel is the struggle I mean, the, str- the 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 struggle is the jewel actually you know it's mm-hmm. it's fighting through that to balance it out and move on you know i'm just wondering if you could point to a time because i to me that's when you that's when the perfectionist side of people begins to melt away mhm yeah man i i really relate to that quote like it's it's really hard to define why but it's true, like the, I don't know, like every night with, with Bruce in the band, there is, a, I don't know if struggle is the right word, but this unknown, right. is, he, he never uses a set list, it's just, we're, we're like reading his <laughs> I lo- See, I have to say, I love that, I just love that so much, I mean, it must be petrifying, but I love it so much. I, I love it too, yeah. it, and it's, it is petrifying sometimes but it's also what we all seek out it's like why everybody in the band wants to be there um because of the that unknown and the freedom of it like um and on on a really good night there's this weird telepathy thing between all six of us where it and i think it is born out of the struggle and and the fear and like in a way, but maybe not the fear, but the unknown. Um, but you know, like every like on the good nights, that everyone's leaving each other enough room. Nobody's stepping on each other's toes, and it's just flowing, right? I mean, that's a beautiful thing. It's it's really it's the it's like the most wonderful feeling in the world. <laughs> I think that's out. why people go and to and do road dog music. They're like the road, <laughs> you know. I mean, that's that's totally. And I mean, I'm not a musician, but. It's an addictive thing, and that is all because of the uh, the potential uh, debacles. But all it takes, you could have forty clunker shows. You wait for that one magic show, and you got it. You know, and it makes makes it all worth it. You know, it makes it makes life worth it. Like it makes the whole the the yeah, it makes totally. I I completely agree. Do you, do you, I mean, going back, so singing, singing was something that you had never, not ever really done in a live setting before, or was it just the idea of performing at, in, in a large venue context with, you know, essentially a Hall of Fame uh, band leader? Yeah. Um, I hadn't really sung at all in a, in a live context before. I sung a little bit in my, in my room, but. Um, and definitely not in the range that, um, Bruce was asking for. Like a, a, a lot of my parts early on in the band were covering like the tenor part above him. Um, right. which is just like, it's my like mirror of embarrassment, you know, and, um, it's just, I, I have this like falsetto voice that I couldn't get comfortable with or comfortable hearing myself. Couldn't, I couldn't like get comfortable hearing that come out of my own mouth. I dig, know? I dig, I dig. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, more recently I've give, uh, the guitarist and I, um, we both live in Nashville, so we've been able to get together and work on our vocal parts together. Um, and on the newer music, I've been doing more, taking more of the lower, the baritone parts. Um, which I'm a lot more comfortable with. But um, yeah, it was this thing. Like I, I had a few months leading up to my first show to like learn the catalog. And um, I was also taking vocal lessons at the time just to like mainly to learn how to overcome my fear. Like I could hear what the parts were supposed to sound like in my ear, but, and I could kind of get the notes out in tune, but it just, it was more, more about like getting in the right mindset. It was a psychological. I, I yeah, I dig, I dig. Yeah, I think sometimes the mental part of it. Well, you know better than anybody. Is um, and, and then that idea of like, I mean, 
you know, it's like how you can't really change your voice. You know, I mean, that's what it, it you know, you know, constitutionally. And then he's asking you to sing in a in a different octave. Um, but so you're telling me that he does this stuff sort of to to push. He he does this to everybody in the band. He kind of recognizes not the Achilles heel, but just sort of the you know the the place you don't want to acknowledge the elephant in the room and then he'll prod that. And really that's, he does that sort of for enjoyment. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, he, he does. And it, it's, I'm so grateful for it. I've, I've learned so much just from him, you know, in, in the moment, like during a show, he might, this happened on, uh, I think the, sh- the night before that he like turned to me and he's like, right before he cued me to to take a break he's like play a pizzicato so and i was all like prepared to play something with my bow oh my god and uh and so you have to like adapt in that in that moment and um i never would have thought to you know play a pizzicato solo there but you have to like adapt like a split second before you actually do it um and he just like pushes you into these new places that you wouldn't naturally think to go. Um, and it, it becomes it, it becomes kind of like a this back and forth thing because then I'm sometimes like thinking of like how can I kind of playfully like push him somewhere else too, or you know I'm trying to do that. And um, he wants he, like, and he wants that too, you know. He does, he does yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's a he's an incredible teacher in that way. <clears throat> I mean, I just I feel like this is kind of a garden variety question, but I mean, how did it happen that you wound up joining the band? Um, my friend Ross Holmes, um, who lives in Nashville, he he played fiddle and mandolin in the band before me, um, and he's a good friend here, and I met him through one of my best friends. Uh, his name is Royal Massat. He plays bass for Billy Strings now. Wow. Um, I needed to get to that cat immediately. He, they're great people. And um, so Ross is Royal's brother-in-law. So Royal was like my best friend when I moved to Nashville, one of, one of the first people here I met. Um, and uh, and I met Ross through him and got really tight with Ross. And then um, when Ross was leaving uh, the Noisemakers, he, he put in a word for me. And it all happened, like, in a single day for me. Like, Ross told me in the morning, like, maybe expect a call this afternoon. And, uh, and then Bruce called me that afternoon. And um, so it all happened in a day. I think that was, uh, that was like February, 2018. So going back, so you've been in the, in the unit for quite a while. So that was pre, pre pandemic and everything. It was. Yeah. I, I want to read you this quote. Um, I've done a lot of shedding with, um, cats that play, you know, similar instruments, you know, string instruments. And this is, I don't know if you know who Richard Green is. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right, so I did. A, I wanted to read this to you, and then, um, and then get your your response. He said, um, "The one year I spent with Bill Monroe was one of the worst financial years of my life. We'd play barns with dirt full floors with five people in the front row. The five people all together had three teeth. Sometimes we'd travel on a bus all night. We did tour England once. It was a high point in his." career both money wise and for the crowds Monroe was very unique if you wanted to play with him all you had to do was ask him if there was an opening you were in if you couldn't cut it he'd start looking for somebody else he had many hundreds of musicians come through his band he was so open and it was amazing it was a once in a several century opportunity for musicians who wanted to play bluegrass they could go to the founder of all the guys in bluegrass and play in that band and that never happened and I know you live in Nashville. Um, are your roots, are, would you say your roots are in 
I only say that because it's just it's just so interesting because, you know, like I consider what you play. I don't know. I, I don't want to ever call it the violin. I mean, I think it's a fiddle. And Bill Monroe played. I mean, Basser played the fiddle. You know, all the Richard Green played the fiddle. And I just wonder, like, did you come? Did you come from a classical background where it was like the violin, or were you somebody who was burning the gig, playing by ear, and you know, playing bluegrass? I bluegrass was uh, that I, I really grew up playing bluegrass in San Diego, uh, where I grew up. Oh, beautiful, um, beautiful. Which, uh, yeah, there was this bluegrass jam. In, in San Diego every every week and my parents were super supportive and and took me there every week and we played you know it was the same catalog of songs almost every single week but that's really where I learned how to improvise like within that within the bluegrass catalog it, it was more like I was drawn to it from the community aspect of it like just the these jams were like really open to all levels and um it was a it was a really good framework to learn how to improvise solos and um but i, I really just fell in love with the, the community and the friends i made through it prior to that you had been would you say reading off the the paper were you taking cues from a conductor or you just picked up and learned by ear I mean, it just, it's, it's amazing to me because like, I just, I feel like, again, it's easy for me to sit here, but, and say this because I'm not a musician, but I just, I find it, I I just wonder how many musicians are playing in symphonic orchestras or whatnot. And yeah, they're making some bread, but they're miserable because they have to play the same, they have to take their, their cues from a conductor. Was there a point in your life where you were like, maybe that community was a, was an was a part of it, but were, was there like a a demarcation point for Mylander when when you said I'm th- I'm throwing the chord charts away, like I just want to burn, or has that sort of always actually been inside of you? Um, well, man, I've, I I did study Suzuki, um, the Suzuki method for a few years when I first started, just to like learn the basics of reading sure. music and all that. Um, I, I wouldn't say I ever threw the chord chart away. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's a little bit ram- re- reckless, but, you know. <laughs> um, I, I actually, I, I really enjoy, like, composing music and, and um, I guess in a way of, you know, composing, <laughs> trying to think of um, com- a way to compose music that provides good improv- improvisational opportunities for people and myself um but uh can you go a little bit deeper about like how you do that i think that that's fascinating i i i think that 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 probably happens more than i know but maybe take a tune that you've recently written like how how do you create the the antecedent so that people are willing to leave the head of the tune and go out or is it like a, is it a structure, the structure, I did love you to talk about how you try to write original tunes that are conducive to stretching out. Yeah, I, man, I love improvisation when it's, um, when it's like within a context of something more composed. Totally. Um, which a lot of Bruce's music is this way. There's like real specific melodic lines and arrangements that everybody has to hit, but then within that there are these open sections where anything can happen and um but there's always something to talk about in the improvisation because it's coming from something there's Mm. something to reference um that's written into the tune so like I, i love these songs that like give you little nuggets of like uh, maybe it's like a melodic theme or rhythmic pattern or chord progression that it, it like gives you chunks of things to work with and work through when you improvise. Um, so it's kind of like you're, it's like solving a puzzle sometimes um, in a fun way. And 
so when I'm writing music, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for things that I can give myself and give other people to work through. Um, you know, sometimes it's like a, just finding a chord progression that's, that requires you to navigate it in a certain way, um, where you're not necessarily like, you can't really stick to one scale and just like blow over the whole thing. Totally. I love it. Um, so I, I like this, I, I like those kinds of opportunities cause they just, uh, there's more chance of discovering something new within yourself in the moment when you're working through them. Um, and, and you, you can't really ever check out and just play patterns. Talking to John Mylander here on the Jake Feinberg show, a very cerebral cat. I mean, can you give me the pros and cons of, of, of Nash Vegas now? I mean, Nashville was, and I've interviewed like Norbert Putnam and uh, guys that were, I mean, we used to be just a hotbed studio scene like LA was and New York and other places like that. And I, I just, it's funny, uh, this guy, this drummer uh, that I saw with <clears throat> this weekend, not for circles, but the opening band, uh, he was in New York. Now he lives down there and he said, uh, Nashville has been very good to him. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about, you know, from your perspective, how authentic the music scene is there. What I mean by that is when you're called in for a gig, a recording gig, how, how, what percentage of time are you hitting live with a full band versus call being called in to overdub something or, you know, it's just, it, to me, it's like, there's nothing I, I can, I mean, I understand it's cost effective and I understand studio expenses. It's just, I mean, I'm looking at the only thing I just have this record collection here and it's, you know, I'm looking here, you know, Hamza Eldin, you know, uh, sanctified music. Uh, I, you know, to me, it's like there has to be anything with quantized rhythm bothers me very deeply. The machine mm -hmm. parts. And I just wonder from because you're playing, you know, more, generally an acoustic instrument, you can obviously plug in, but. How authentic is the music that you find yourself making? Uh, not necessarily on the bandstand, but I, I would assume you, you must make a decent living playing, uh, doing studio work. Um, I, I do end up doing a lot of, of studio work when I'm home. Um, I, I love the studio scene here, and, and definitely, um, you know, there's a great scene for bluegrass music um, around Nashville, and a lot of that music and like bluegrass related music it does end up being tracked live um you know the whole band there together um and yeah i'd say it's different session to session and uh but it it, it took a while to kind of find my people here and and find out where the weirdos are in Nashville, <laughs> so know? where are the weirdos dude how did you find that yeah. I, I want you to tell me that story because that it, it's like yeah to me it's like you walk it's not like you just get there one day and you're just plugged into the scene um and you all ultimately have to find the people that you connect with on a spirit on a soul level so how tell, take us through yeah. that story how did you find the weirdos uh, man good Good question. I don't know exactly. <laughs> just kind of, you were just put, you, you're going, you had to go out a lot and sort of a lot of, you know, greasy bars and just sort of kick it around or like, I mean, what was, the, tell me a little bit about like, I just, cause I got a really good friend who's coming in there pretty soon, uh, that I'll definitely connect you with. Cause I just feel like you guys will have a ball together. Um, but yeah, I mean, what's their name? His name is Zephaniah O'Hora. He's a, he's a, do you know, do you know that name? No, I, I don't. He's an incredible, anyway, he's, I, I, he, I'm just saying he's, he's moving his family there and, um, it would be an honor to connect you to. He's an amazing singer and he's a great, awesome. great songwriter and, uh, getting better improvisationally, but, you know, definitely in the same boat as you where he, he definitely has some connections there, but always looking for, you know, hungry cats with big ears but what, what like so what was the i just you know it is like i want to know where the weird place is where like 
people are like cutting it up, you know, it's not necessarily even a jam session, but you know, where the weirdos are. Cause I, I don't want to walk into some, what I just don't, I, I want, I want authenticity. That's all I care about. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same here. Um, I think that's what I was chasing when I got here. I, you know, I, when I moved here, I was kind of part of a project, um, that, it was cool music, but I, I don't think I felt like my authentic self as a part of it. Um, and that ended pretty soon after I moved here. And I was like, I don't think I, I didn't think I was going to stay here for very long. Um, I think just chasing the art that like meant something to me kind of, that's where I found my, my best friends who, who live here and uh, a lot of the people I collaborate with who live here now. And um, I, I never would have been connected with, with Bruce if I didn't live in Nashville. And uh, I think my, my friend Royal was a big part of uh, kind of tapping into uh, music in Nashville for me and in, in like in a way that felt a lot more authentic like so we'd get together and jam and like not in, with the only intention of like trying to reach that spiritual place in music <laughs> <together>. <laughs> i love it yeah just having fun man trying to get there yeah 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 and so I, and we'd bring in other friends to jam and just just for the sake of music and um, so I, I, I don't know. I think that's, that's a, it's a, I'm not sure exactly how to answer that. Question. You know what, you know what it is <laughs> like for you? Um, yeah, of course you, I mean, cause you know, a gig is a gig. I mean, you know, but I just wonder, um, at this point, I mean, you can't, how, how old are you by the way? Um, I just turned 32 yesterday. Um, happy birthday, dude. This is such an honor, man. Uh, yo, man, uh, dude. So I'm 44, but I mean, dude, that is, so you're, you're just, uh, I mean, you got chapters upon chapters left to right. Um, do you find yourself, and it's okay to, you know, it's okay if you have to, but do you find your, I mean, obviously this gig with Bruce is, is a great, is, is, is just perfect. Um, but in, in, do you find yourself like the cats, like the weirdos, the cats that come in and just want to get to that spiritual plane? Um, are you having to take gigs that um, that uh, it's music that it's really not that appealing to you, but you're doing it because it's a good paycheck, or are you kind of just able to uh, ideally play music that gets you off, and you can. You know, it could, to me, there's a fine line between being a. A lot of the jazzers would say, you know, there's a fine line between being a musician and an artist, where the musician has to, you know, take the bar mitzvah gigs, take the funk gigs, whether they like them or not, because mm -hmm. it, it it pays the bills, versus that artist that is able to sing for his supper, playing music that is, it, it, you know, it could it's genreless, but you know, it it's it's what you're about. Do you feel like you've are you are you able to kind of do that? And how many of the weirdos can pull that? I just I have this feeling that um, just going back to talking to all the jazzers, you know, guys like Randy Brecker back at a different time, and, you know, he he was part of Radio Registry, so you know <clears throat> they'd get called in for jingles and commercials and um, studio dates, and and within a week he could pay off one hundred fifty dollars of his loft and the west side of Manhattan and then he could go out and actually just play the music that he loved but he didn't have to worry about paying the bills and supporting his family he could you know like like he could and and then ultimately you look at bands like Dreams or uh, you know all the amazing bands that came out of that time period Mahavishnu Orchestra where just kicking it around because they they could focus solely on the art itself. I just wonder how often you're able to focus on creation of original art versus being able to sing for your supper and, and pay your bills. Mm -hmm. uh, that's definitely the goal is to, you know, 
the the artist side of that is is that that's what I I want in life for sure. Um, and I feel really lucky that I feel like most of my work is aligned with that. Um, but you, I I definitely from time to time have to do do something that is more on just the musician side of things. I did. Um, yeah. For sure. But I, I feel like there's always um, something positive, something musically positive that you can take out of any situation, no matter what it is. And um, Can you, can you, can you tell me, can you just for my own education, like talk about a gig that, you, you you did for that reason, but what you learned from it, you know, like, give me an example. You know, sometimes people say, uh, you know, the, they're band leaders now, and I say, what you know, what what's what are the qualities of leadership that you learned from a band leader before? And they would say, I learned what not to do. Um, but, like, in, can you give an example of a, of, a, of a kind of society gig or just some gig that was kind of like a burnout, but yet you were like, you had to take it because the money was good. And what did you take out of it positively? Um, well, man, I, I not so like single. No, you don't have to mention any names at all. You know, just, I'm just, I want to find that silver lining within that musician. Cause I, that's the reality for most cats today. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was. I recently did this recording project. It was just a full day in Nashville um, with a, a like more of a pop country artist who um, wants to do a bluegrass record, and um, I definitely, you know, I always have to kind of weigh the, these things before I say yes or no. Like, is it with Good people is the music um, interesting? What like what will I learn from this musically? And then the the money's a consideration too. Absolutely. Um, but I, I feel like if it doesn't meet two of those things, I'll probably say no. Generally, like maybe the money's great, but it's with like mean people, and I don't feel any connection to the music. Like I, I don't know if I'd say yes to that, but if, if, and also like maybe the money's not great for something, but it's music I love and people I love, like I'd be more inclined to say yes to that. So it's, I'm always kind of weighing these things and trying to make the right decision, you know, to to stay as close to the artist side as I can. Um, It's so it's fair to say that, that for the most part you have, enough opportunities to sort of be able to pick and choose sometime, most of the time. I guess, I, I guess I do. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's really, I mean, for you and your position, you're, that's awesome. You know? And I think that just speaks to your versatility. I mean, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just think that like, um, I think that's something to be very, that you should not take that for granted because I, I would say if I that, don't if, at all. okay, good. So don't, you know, self-love is key, Mylander. Don't take anything. And also, you know, you're on your path. So don't take that for granted. You know, I think that's really awesome to be able to sort of, not all the time, but, you know, weigh those two out of three factors and then go for it. You know, I think that's beautiful. And this session turned out to be really fun, actually, because I got to, I got to put the band together for it. So I just asked, like, some of my best friends to come in for the day and we got to track live. Oh man, that's, um, that's not a drag. <laughs> that's great. So, yeah, yeah. It's like we, we, we made it, um, not that the songs were bad. They were just like, not what I would typically listen to or seek out. It, it's just from a different world. Um, totally. and, uh, somewhat like commercial world, but we, I brought in artist friends and everybody like contributed like really thoughtful artistic ideas to it. And uh, so I I think what came out in the end is something that um, something cool and and valuable. 
Um, okay, I just want you to go a little bit deeper here because this is really important for the audience. That word commercial world, what are the components of that music that makes it completely different than the grease factory that Mylander would normally be cutting the groove on? And um, it's in just intention, I think. Like, what does that mean? So, what does that mean? I, I that go deeper on that. It's like, why is the music made in the first place? Is, is it <laughs> right. is it made to sell a record, or because um, someone else thinks it should should be there, or is it is it made from like be, because you have to make it or is it made for something else or like, I, 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 I don't know. Like, you know, music that's like not so polished and, um, you know, maybe it's like really out of tune and like, I'm thinking of like old, like, maybe like old time fiddle recording. Absolutely. Dude, that's the like that's old, most burning old, stuff old in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, um, you know, it's not polished. It's not recorded to a click track. And I just, like, I, I think about why these artists made the music in the first place. And that's, sometimes that's more interesting than the music itself. Um, and definitely is what, what draws me to listen to, to music. Like, I, I feel like all my favorite music was made with like with a really personal intention like they're saying something with with the music they had to get it out of their system because they had no other choice mm -hmm. i love that so you would say not painting with a total broad brush but commercial music a lot of the time the intention is not necessarily coming from the artist itself there's some sort of other priority sort of mainly bottom line money kind of thing or somebody else is pushing it and that person's soul is not really even necessarily in the music. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are exceptions. I, I'm sure there's, you know, plenty of artists who have their soul in the music and it's also a commercial record. Deal. Yeah, that's right. Very, very good point. Um, yep. But, um, like when I listen to it, like, like, I mean, you know, like, I don't know, like my, <clears throat> I work at a nonprofit um, here in Tucson, and my former boss uh, used to play this, <clears throat> like, neo-country music, and it was just, I mean, first of all, it was also just, you know, part of the issue is just, and I'm talking about it from a, a dissemination point of view, and the way audiences take in the music, when I started that gig, they were still playing the same regurgitated tunes a year later over and over and over again. And the messages were just so surface oriented. There was no improvisation. Again, these are big name country stars. You know, they have unlimited budgets and yet I couldn't feel anything. And they're just pumping this into the airwaves. It, it, it makes me a little bummed out. I mean, I know I have to seek out the, the cats that I love, but mm -hmm. you know, that component of music making is like, <clears throat> it's, you know, cause it, you know, like you go back to, um, I mean, I just interviewed Al Cooper and there's, and there's Bob Dylan going down to Nashville to cut blonde on blonde. And D Bob didn't even know how to communicate verbally with the musicians. So Cooper's mm -hmm. down there, Robbie Robertson's down there, but you know, look what came of it. It was, I wouldn't call that a commercial record, but it's a legendary record. And I, and I yeah. feel that, you know, and, I, and I'm that, I guess, more to the point. One reason I gravitated to you and guys like Samson Grisman and all these beautiful cats. I love Sam. Well, I know, he, he was the first cat I reached out to because I saw that we were both following him on Instagram. And, he, you know, David is a, is a, I mean, I've done a bunch of interviews with Grizz Dog. And Samson is just such a classic guy. And, he, and I just was like, dude. Who is this Mylander man? He's an assassin on the bandstand, and he's like, he's like, dude, he's a complete sweetheart, beautiful cat. But when I see you guys, I'm like, wow, okay, yeah. I wouldn't say hope for the future, but it's still happening. 
It's just not the thing about Dylan is the thing about those records back in the day is that they were commodified and cats mm-hmm. made a living off that kind of music, you know, and it's harder. Yeah. It's just that much harder today, you know, but I, I love, anyway, I just love that you're going for it, man. And I think it's really, <clears throat> I wanted this, this is really important. I, before it leaves my mind, I wanted to talk to you. Did you, did you can you talk about your philosophy as it relates to wearing in-ear monitors on stage? Man, that's I, I'm not a huge fan of it, honestly. It, that that was another thing when I joined the Noisemakers. I'd never used in-ears before, um, so it's it's taken some time to get comfortable with. Um, I got to be honest, yeah. man. I mean, you know, because because like. There's. Can you just talk, forgetting about the noisemakers for a minute, but just how did you learn to incorporate the environment into your music? Because, I mean, no, Bernard Purdy was not wearing in-ear monitors playing with Aretha Franklin at the Fillmore West. None of these cats are wearing in-ear monitors. People are so obsessed now having to hear themselves. And I'm speaking more about like rhythm sections, drummers and the minute you start listening to yourself, you're kind of, you could potentially be behind the beat. And there's something about like just the environmental, organic, raw energy. You know, someone might be clapping or some wood block hits the floor. And next thing you know, you're going off in that direction. I think that that is the, I mean, to me, like, I just wonder what that must sound like collectively as a unit, because, you know, it's almost like, at that show in Tucson, it just seemed like, I mean, the music felt great, but I just wonder, like, are you really able to hear any ambient noise or is it all just like dialed into the instruments that you want to, that you need to hang on to, to keep? Yeah. And I, th- I think that's my biggest fear with using them is to feel isolated from the other musicians and yeah, that that can be nice in the studio sometimes, but I, I, I love hearing the ambient noise and reacting to the room um, in a live show. Um, I love that. Dude, you nailed you nailed it, dude. So you're in isolation, and you could almost just put your head down. I mean, you wouldn't do this, but you don't really have to. You're not you're not reacting to anything other than what you're hearing in your ears. I mean, that that is that basically what's going on. Um. Not not necessarily. Like they, our sound crew filters in some. Uh, they have some audience mics so we can hear the crowd and, um, you know, generally hear the room. Um, and the the in ears I have filter in some ambient sound also, which I I got them kind of primarily for intonation purposes. Like, sure. Um, you know, when you play a note on on the fiddle, like it's one pitch when the bow touches the string, and then it's another pitch by the time it hits your ear. It's very subtle, but it's like the a, a, a note might sound in tune once it leaves the instrument, but when you're playing with a pickup in like an electric context, like you only get this like, sine wave sound of the initial note you're not getting any of the room ambience that like also contributes to the you know whether the note sounds in tune or not so dude i you're I, nailing this i mean it's it's like also bruce's i mean do you think it in in in, in a lot of ways it can i'm just Wondering about this just because um, with circles, it's an, I'm not going to name names, but you know, uh, one of the issues is that three of the four cats are not wearing in ear monitors, and they're longing for the conversation to, even if it gets a little bit messy, to go even farther out because they're so listen, their ears are just tapped into that ambient sound, and yet the cat who's using in ear monitors is not. I mean, he's not in isolation, but yet it's almost too slick and um you know and i just wonder like uh i mean bruce is do you feel like um the band 
Yeah, and what is the philosophy with all these, you know, I mean, you're the youngest in that band. What is the philosophy behind having that kind of stuff? Because, you know, in your monitors, like what, what the none of those cats really would necessarily need them, but mm-hmm. maybe, maybe they become overly reliant. I mean, what what what's the rationale behind it so that all the musicians can feel comfortable in their? Because I mean, in the past, it would be like you're playing out of antiquated PA systems back in the '60s, and you could barely hear anything and. All that mattered is if the first couple of rows of the people were having fun dancing. But I just wonder, mm-hmm. um, you know, what's the rationale behind that? Uh, some a place like the Fox Theater, I mean, it was a pretty raucous thing. And yet you could tell that you guys were kind of just in your own little world. Mm-hmm. I think, a, uh, I guess a, a big reason for it is just to keep the stage volume as low as possible. Um, and that gives a lot more sound control, um, and way it sounds in front of house, um, with less like feedback issues and that kind of thing. Um, I guess that's, that's probably the main purpose of using them. And for, for most groups, um, just to, just to be able to keep the stage volume down. Can you talk about some other, uh, like projects that are you going to be, are you kind of gearing up to maybe lead your own band? I mean, I just want to come see Mylander burning the gig without any inner monitors, you know, like on fire, like, you know, like, and not even, I mean, what other kinds of, do you tour, do you have other tours aside from Bruce? Um, uh, here and there. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have been working with my own band here in Nashville um, wow. since uh, 2019. And it, it's really, it's like a passion project thing, but we're, we're doing a little more coming up this year outside of Nashville that um, we, we've just had this monthly gig uh, for the past year and a half or so. And uh, it's, that's been really keeping me going creatively. Talk a little bit about it. It's a passion project, but I mean, the, what's the instrumentation? Kind of what's the whole? As a leader, what's your what's your angle on it? Um, it's uh, it's mostly instrumental music, um, mostly original instrumental music. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the way I'm leading it is really inspired by Bruce. Like the he's a big reason why I wanted to try my hand at it in the first place um but it's uh it's a six-piece band it's um I, do, I play fiddle and uh some some keys i'm kind of just it's a, that's a newer thing for me but i'm challenging myself with it um and then there's a great tenor sax player uh, named david williford and um great pedal steel uh this guy chris lippincott plays pedal steel and uh wurlitzer wow wow um, what a what an interesting instrumental lineup it's it's yeah it's I, wild I, man um and then ethan yojevitz on bass uh, he, he does upright and electric and fretless um mark radaba on drums and Jake Stargell on guitar. So it's a, it's, and he plays acoustic guitar. So it's kind of like a mix. It's kind of genre ambiguous is the goal. I did. I did the best way. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. I I mean, it, do you, is it sort of like, um, you know, in terms of what, what do you, 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 what is most inspiring about Bruce that you wanted to take your hand and put it into, and put it in this cookie jar? What are a couple of those things that you were like, wow, I want to, maybe I'll fall on my face, but I really want to try to lead this. Yeah. Um, I, I guess his arrangement style of kind of in the moment arrangements mm-hmm. in a live show where he can break the band down to any two people at a time or any three people at a time. Um, and just all the different like combinations and colors you can get from pairing up different band members. 
Um, so like with a six piece band, you kind of have three different, uh, trios within that band or like, you know, you can break the band down to different, um, sure. dynamic levels. Um, so that's been, that's been a big part of the, the inspiration from Bruce and just, uh, exploring the dynamic ranges too of like, can we be, you know, our biggest sound possible and then drop down to like the smallest sound possible. Dynamics are absolutely huge, man. Yeah. It's essential, man. I think that's absolutely, wow. I mean, that rhythm player, he sort of continues to, he, it's, he almost serves as a, sort of part of the rhythm section where he's just keeping that gets that foundation really deep um which which player uh, jake maybe the 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 acoustic guitarist yeah um yeah he he uh man he kind of fills in like a lot of the a lot of the cracks like he um he's playing in the cracks i dig yeah he's a great color player and he comes from a bluegrass background Uh, he's he's like played with Ricky Skaggs and guys like that. And, um, so he's just a killer flat pick guitar player too. But then like me, he's from a bluegrass background, but all the stuff he really loves is like from the jazz world. Like he's way into Kurt Rosenwinkel and Brad Noldow and these guys. And so we, we like bond over that music. And so part of the goal with this band is like, we all come from kind of different backgrounds. Like a lot of us are from the kind of bluegrass adjacent world, a dog music adjacent world. Um, but we all like love like Pat Metheny group. And, like, like Thelonious Monk. Yeah. yeah I, I love it. Yeah. Mingus. So it, yeah. It's like trying and Mahavishnu orchestra is like a huge, inspiration for this band and jerry goodman um, man i gotta send you that interview dude best interview ever with jerry goodman man sickest oh, man i'd love to hear i'm that. gonna send that immediately dude like dude yeah it was well continue so so um i love the fact that you are freaks about that about jazz i mean that that to me is uh because dog was too i mean i in the interviews i did you know he's going he was going to see eric dolphy uh, you know, at the five spot and, you know, no one would ever mistake dog music with Eric Dolphy, but yet to me, there's an inspirational component, a spiritual component. And then also the idea of saying, how far can we sonically expand and how far can we, and how much can we bring it down dynamically? I mean, that's, and that's kind of where I come from with the Duke Ellington school where it's, it is all music. Um, you know, um, can you just talk to the the audience about the first time that you played a fiddle with a with a trap set drummer? Um, like, was that an adjustment for you? Uh, to me, it's like not. Uh, you know that band C Train? Yeah, yeah, Peter Rowan and, and Richard Green and Andy Colberg. And you know, like that was you were putting some sort of they were putting a lot of traditional acoustic instruments into an electric setting. Uh, Richard Green was playing with a wah pedal, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, but yet he's coming from the Bill Monroe school. Then there was maybe an upright player, but there was no trap set. And I just wonder what that was like. And maybe the better question is, have you just, I mean, Bruce is definitely, the noisemakers is almost uh, genre list music, but have you played in in a kind of a fusion band uh like a like a, a not exactly like Mahavishnu but along those lines where you had to plug in or use pedals uh you can riff on that any way you want mm-hmm. but man I, I love playing with the drummer um I, I love playing traditional bluegrass too and like you know a five-piece bluegrass band is kind of like I forget who said this but it's like a one huge drum kit without drums like every member of a bluegrass band is like part of a drum set totally it's really grooving i love that but um so i I love that too but my playing with a playing with a drum kit 
player that's just one of my favorite things like playing next to a drummer um i i feel like i can have more freedom and take more liberties with like the way i interpret rhythm when there's a great rhythm section um and and with my own group here that's kind of part part of the intention with that is to have like it's kind of a jazz fusion band um and i just like i love playing with mark our drummer and uh and you know don't often outside of the noisemakers don't often get to tour with a drummer right so it's just to just to get to stand next to him and play and you know it's 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 a great feeling i I love plugging in i I really uh i love he's experimenting with pedals and yeah that's what i want to see so that's all i I mean i I, you know like that to me is just like (laughs) i mean whether with bruce so much because it's like more distractions on stage absolutely um, well i mean which, if he was playing like arp synth and fender Rhodes, it'd be a different story he's playing that acoustic you know or that grant mm-hmm. baby grand so it's um but even so like i mean I, I was that was one thing that was really impressive again it, that's part of the going back to the monitors again the in-ear stuff it's like because you were you were having to contend with a uh electric bass big drum kit uh, mm-hmm. the cat that was playing all that, I guess, synthesizer, uh, uh, organ. Um, yeah. that's a lot of, ele- yeah, that's just a lot of like electric stuff. And there you are, you know, just blazing away, but you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, whether it's Jean-Luc Ponty or Richard Green or Sugarcane Harris, do you know Sugarcane by the way? Yeah. Well, uh, no, no, I have haven't known him personally. Well, I mean, of course, he's but, been uh, gone for too long. Yeah. But I mean, I want to. I was. Gonna, I'm like, I got to hit my lander to this cat because that dude was a total savant and was out of control. But that that yeah. you know, I mean, as we wrap up set one here, I just what is? I oftentimes ask people this: where, um. When you put something out in the ether, it has a tendency to sort of manifest in its own way. And I just wonder, you know, what is something that you really want to see come to fruition for you, uh, you know, in the coming months and year musically? Uh, what would you like to have happen, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in your career? And, and, and just talk about that. Man, that's a that's a huge I know, question. I know. Um, just just choose one thing. One one thing that may be within within striking distance. Um, but man, I'm I'm really looking forward to, to traveling with my own group more this year, and and just developing that project more because it's it's really a, a source of joy for me, and uh, I'm I'm. I'd like to do another record. Um, we, we recorded one in 2020. Um, all we, we were able to do it live, but isolated. And it was like in the middle of the pandemic. And, um, but I'd really like to get back in the studio with the band and like do something together again. Now that we've been able to play every, every month for, uh, for the past like 15 months or so. And, um, do you feel that some of this is so important? Cause you talked about Pat Matheny. I interviewed Mark Egan and Danny Gottlieb and obviously the grateful dead. Totally. This was out of their playbook. I mean, they, they spent seven years out of the studio, um, in the, from 80 to 87 Matheny as well. They went on like 180 gigs tour with new music. And by the time they went into the studio, a few of those tunes had taken on a whole new life of their own. I have to believe that from these gigs that you've been playing monthly, that some of your original tunes have really taken on a life of their own. If that's the case, then you absolutely, or maybe go, maybe take a little mini tour as well, but still, are there a few tunes that have, that have already morphed into something that, that was not there at the beginning? Totally. Totally. And just kind of like getting the blueprints of them and trying them out in a live 
setting and and trying to explore them like in the in the way that Bruce does with his own songs like um trying to make you know really spur the moment arrangement decisions and um improvise together on them and see where that leads us um so yeah it's definitely definitely like the the framework is coming together and we're still kind of workshopping the tunes live well it's going to be much more than a passion project my brother this is absolutely the the ingredients that it takes um you know, yeah, I, I, is, is, uh, well, that's a whole other interview, but let's, let's, let's pause it here and let's, uh, let's pick up and do set two as soon as possible, man. We got more to do. It's so great to talk with you, Jake. Man, I'll tell you, I, it's been one of the best, I mean, we haven't met personally and hung, but you know, people like you, man, you, you inspire a lot of people. And I just will say this. I mean, I, I can be a little bit, um, you know, I can tell you how I feel, but a lot of people will never tell you how much you impact them, not just you specifically, but just know that you have that capacity to inspire and uh, to be unabashed in your creativity and you don't need to apologize for anything. I'll leave you with this one thing about, because I interviewed the late, great David Crosby a few years ago mm. and uh, <clears throat> when I was on AM radio and <laughs> he was an hour late for the interview and we got into it we're 20 minutes in having a ball and all of a sudden he said you know man i'm at the studio i gotta go to work i'm sorry i'd love to keep talking to you and i i'm just saying you've got to advocate for yourself because i didn't think i'd ever have the the the, the gall to say this but i was like david you know i waited an hour uh, for mm -hmm. i'm for you i'm like you know can you give me a few more minutes and he said yeah sure so always doesn't matter who it is i don't care if they're being jerks all i'm saying is you advocate for yourself in any setting because you belong man and uh, it's just it's just really an honor to connect with you brother likewise man thank you we'll do it again babe much love back at you dude all right man be cool baby uh, great great to meet you jake absolutely dude keep it up talk to you soon all right thank you peace